Grom. in Lexington. I am. Yeah, man, let's let's do this thing. In five. Are you ready in Lexington? In five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Cromcast. We are your mighty hosts for the evening. I'm Jonathan. I'm Josh. And I'm I'm Luke. This is season what, 103? 83. 83? Season 83, episode Infinity. Yeah. polynomial <laughs> recursive i don't know what what episode are we on <laughs> this is pie episode this pie. Is, this is episode pie uh we're still in the manly wade wellman season we're digging some manly wade wellman stories the last few episodes um interrupted by our regular b&b kind of stuff but now we're moving into a little bit of new territory we're going to talk about hellboy tonight we got a hellboy story called the crooked man the crooked man is scary it's a, it's freaky man He's the that uh, uh, Richard Corbin illustration of him just kind of peeking through the trees early on. Whenever uh, Tommy does the the little ritual with the cat to get the bone yep. is pretty freaky. Richard Corbin is really good at drawing freaky things and scrubby things. Yeah. What was your first Richard Corbin story that you ever read? Man, that's a good question. This one is fresh on my mind. But I know I've read others before that. How about you, Luke? Do you know? Uh, I can't. I was I was trying to think. There is there. There's a Hellboy in Africa. Yeah. Oh Macoma. yeah. That's, that's Macoma. Uh, like that. Uh, and then this story. Like these were things that definitely got me into Corbin. Like I knew I knew who he was because whenever the Crooked Man came out, it was kind of the heyday of when I was buying lots and lots of single issues. Uh, and I was picking up all the Hellboy stuff at this point in time. Uh, and so I remember coming to appreciate Corbin and knowing that he was like this this great older generation of artists. Right. But I, I haven't read deep into any of his uh, – what am I trying to say? Like his, he did, did he work in heavy metal? Oh, say again? You haven't dug into his portfolio? Yeah, was he in? Did he do 2000 AD or did he do heavy metal or did he do both? Uh, I'm looking at his Wikipedia right now, and he definitely did heavy metal. Okay, yeah, I never really read into those magazines. Those are magazines that I always wanted to get into, but I never like we. we I just wasn't able to get into them at A plus, uh, and so I, I never sought them out. Oh, but or he did Banner, like he did that. That, that that's the first that, one I read. Oh, yeah. Yep. So that was another one because I remember picking that up from the library, like as a graphic novel, uh, and just ripping through that one, one time. That I mean, his really art style is so is so funky that just it was disconcerting, and it's still kind of disconcerting, like just the way he does his thing. But it's it's so it's so good. I thought maybe Luke would say the cover art for Meatloaf's "Bad Out of Hell" was his first exposure to Richard Corbin. I, I just learned that just now. <laughs> I. I yeah, th- I guess it was because <laughs> that cover 
you know, intimately. Uh, but yeah, but I didn't know it was him. So unless we've talked about that on another show, I don't no, know. I don't think so. That seems yeah, fresh to me. That's new to me. Yeah. Breaking news. But yes, the art in this story is by Richard Corbin, and the story is by Mike Mignola, like most all of the Hellboy Mignola-verse. And so that's what we're going to be digging through here tonight. But before we get into it, how about we talk about what we're drinking? Josh, would you like to go first? That's fair. Sure. I've got some High Lifes, and this has just been the summer of High Life, really since March. <laughs> I mean, my I don't know about your guys' uh, hot boy summer, but... <laughs> Mine, mine has been full of highlights and uh, almost, almost nonstop. Heaven Hill, the the green label. Are you tagging yourself on our Instagram page as Hot Boy Summer? I can start. I I really hope you do. <laughs> Just pictures of your feet and flip flops with a can of High Life sort of positioned near them. Yeah, okay, I can do that. You could start an yeah. OnlyFans with that, probably. <laughs> Picture pictures of my sweaty face yeah. as it's. It was 101 degrees in Lexington today with the heat index. Sure, you can do that too. But feet, I, mean, I think, would be really where you'd make the money. That's maybe true. I do have uh, really dainty hobbit feet. See? <laughs> I'm just trying to make money Luke? for us. <laughs> yeah, got to make that cheddar. How about you, Luke? What you got drinking over there? So today is a beer fridge clean-out day. I didn't get a chance to... To, to re-up, so I have a variety of things that came from uh, my father-in-law uh, from his house. Uh, I hate to say it, but actually right now I'm drinking a Bud Light, because uh, I have probably, I don't know, eight or ten Bud Lights that were, that made their way from a 12-pack, you know, from from a, a family cookout of of them and, and, and us. Uh, Dilly and- Dilly. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll drink Bud Light. Uh, it's 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 cheap beer, especially uh, it's, it's, not, it's not the high life. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna go, if I'm gonna go low, I'm gonna go way low. And I want something that's got a bit more carbon carbonation and it has just a little bit more bite to it. But anyway, that's what I'm drinking now. I also had before this a uh, a cider boys like sangria. It was like a straight up fruit bomb. Yeah, um, man. That was that was what I that's what I started with, and I've got a Sam Adams uh, old Fezziwig that somehow snuck in here, and uh, I think that's it. So I brought four beers up, and I think I've got two. Yeah, I had, I had two Bud Lights, and then the the Cider Boys, and then the the old Fezziwig. So, but it's it's a mishmash. Uh, tomorrow, whenever I go to Kroger to get bananas and snacks for the for the kiddo, I'll get another. You know, fifteen back of a uh, of something. Bananas, snack packs, some high lifes. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, some, the founders uh, uh, all day IPAs. Has that's been what I was gonna say. Yeah, heavy rotation for this guy too. I love that. So, what about you, Johnster? What are you drinking? Um, I have a West Six Cerveza. You like those? I I do, and I found them pretty easily recently. So that's what we're yep. drinking. How about we next do? One thing.
Josh, you get to go first again. Okay, that's fair. Um, I have um, lately started reading um, a couple of uh, different books. One that uh, John got me uh, for Christmas by a Kentucky author named Chris Offit. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I can't think of the name of it because it's in the other room. I didn't bring it in here with me. It's, hold on, Kentucky Dark, right? That sounds right. Hang on. We'll edit this out. Kentucky Straight. Yeah. And then there's Out of the Woods. And so I've been reading a couple of those Offit books, uh, uh, Kentucky Straight and Out of the Woods. And I uh, dig it. It's kind of uh, following up on the heels of the mainly Wade Wellman, John, the Balladeer stories. And so I, uh, I dig that. And I've also dug into a book that Luke recommended to me a couple of years ago. And that is The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott. What's his name? Oh, uh, Scott Lynch. Yeah, Scott Lynch. Um, and that book, I'm only about 100 pages in, but that book has an excellent hook. And I love the structure of it. It's, it's like a Fritz Leiber uh, story is what it reminds me of. The, the characterizations of Locke and um, the, the thief master and father chains and those uh, prologue chapters, they seem like they jumped right out of Liber's imagination. Um, so I'm, I'm digging on some uh, Kentucky themed um, crime noir um, Americana stories. And I'm digging on some uh, I'm going to call it sword and sorcery. Nice. Why not? A lot the of life. things can be sorcery, dude. <laughs> Are there swords? Is there sorcery? Up to two magic items, <laughs> but no more. And that's <laughs> and that's what I've uh, that's what I've been doing. How about you, Luke? I have been reading some science fictional work here here lately, uh, and uh, specifically, I've been re- reading uh, some some Philip K. Dick. I'm going to call that. Uh, Generally, my one thing specifically, I read uh, Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, and I'd never read that before, and I loved it. And so now I'm reading A Scanner Darkly. So, uh, and I might go back and reread Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Uh, I had I have that one. That's the that's the only like Philip K. Dick novel that I'd read previously. Uh, but he's awesome. He 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 is a was a very prescient. Uh, author of his time and uh if you wanna if you wanna scare yourself read uh uh flow my tears because there's a lot of there's a lot of very uh now stuff going down in there um so i had a question about (laughs) i had a question but i forgot what it was (laughs) (laughs) never mind no we can wait no Keep going. Uh, I bet it'll come back to uh, to Big Josh. What about you, Big Tuna? <laughs> big Tuna. I, I'm Big Tuna now. You're Big Tuna. Uh, I'm gonna go. I was gonna go with the BPRD stuff that I was reading, but I think I'm gonna go instead with a book I just finished called Hunting Eichmann. Its subtitle is How a Band of Survivors and a Young Spy Agency Chase Down the World's Most Notorious Nazi, which is a bit long. But uh, the book was really good. It's by Neil Bascom. And it was about 
how some of the fledgling spy agencies in the nation of Israel during the 60s found out where Adolf Eichmann was living in Argentina and how that all came about and how he had escaped and then their preparation and practice to basically perform an illegal abduction of him from Buenos Aires and put him on a civilian plane and take him back under cover of darkness to Israel to stand trial for crimes against humanity. It was really pulse pounding and it was a story that I knew bits and pieces of, but not the whole thing about. I knew more about what happened with Mangala, I guess, where he had sort of escaped and eluded capture in Argentina only to drown in the ocean. I think a few years later, but uh, Eichmann did get caught and kind of was defiant to the end. He was just saying how much he was just following orders and how he wasn't a bad guy. So, uh, if you're interested in that story, I think this was a really well done piece of nonfiction. Nice. I like the uh, the term pulse pounding that you applied there. That that makes it seem like it's a page turner. It is. It was. It's just like a spy novel, except it really happened and involves a Nazi, one of the most notorious war criminals ever to live. Wow. Do you know about Eichmann? You know what he did? Tell 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 the listeners. Oh, I, he was. I mean, he was basically like the mind behind facilitating the final solution it wasn't his idea but he was the guy who planned the whole thing so uh-huh. he made sure all the trains ran on time he figured out how to deport all of the the jewish folks from different countries and how to get them to auschwitz and all the other concentration camps so bad dude uh, no doubt about it and got kind of what he deserved in the end yeah i feel like mine was a downer and your guys it's it's not. It's not. Dude, Punch no. me. I mean, dead. Na- yeah, I guess dead Nazis aren't a downer. You're right. Dead Nazis yeah. are fine. Yeah, that's as American as, as uh, Superman and apple pie. That's right. Which really, apple pie is Dutch. So that's true. And, and Superman's Superman. from Ohio. Does that count? Uh, I think so. We're a melting pot. That's right. Or a salad bowl. I don't know. And Whichever this is, one is more inclusive. This has been the one thing salad bowl where you toss all that salad together and you get one thing. <laughs> I remember my question. Uh, are you going to revisit the uh, film version of A Scanner Darkly that you and I watched forever and ever ago? I would love to. The the uh, copy that I got from, from the A books of A Scanner Darkly uh, is is the release con- like concurrent with that. So it's okay. got, uh, you know, like Winona Ryder and Keanu and, uh, RDJ. Woody Harrelson. So, yeah. Everybody's like, uh, and, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. They're all like, it's that aesthetic. Yeah. I would like to, I would love to rewatch it. Uh, that was all cell shaded, right? Yeah. yeah. It was like, uh, um, what's it called when you trace over the, uh, uh, the 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 film is it rotoscoped, rotoscoped yeah. and cell shaded. Is it Kyoshiro? Is that the right yeah. term too? Oh, oh uh, maybe. However, you yeah, say. it it was yeah. a it was a trip to watch. I remember watching it, and and I think that I liked it. I don't remember <laughs> hating it. Yeah. Uh. So I would like to. I would like to. I would like to do those things, and I, I've I've said it to you guys in some texts over the past the past few days too i want us to watch uh blade runner 2049 too uh i think it might be a, a little much for us to try to marathon both of them side by side that would be like a, a a five to six hour endeavor one night maybe we can do it if we all uh 
get in the get in the living room and 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 stake out and like I think we could do that. Uh, but we can just watch twenty forty nine. I want to do that. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. In the before times, we did go see regular Blade Runner in the theater. Remember that's that is yeah. true. Yeah, so we can. Th- but the twenty forty nine is like damn near three hours long. Uh, so it yeah, we just need to sit down and watch it because it's uh, it's a whole can of other worms. But yeah, I'm I'm in that 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 PKD headspace these days. So you down with PKD? <laughs> I'm gonna keep on keep on reading some of that. So. Nice. Okay, sorry, I diverted us. No, it's all no, right. We man. can we can edit that back in. Oh, back the in. magic of uh, that's right of editing. We'll fix it in post. Nice. Do either of you have publication information about this comic before we get going? I do. Uh, yeah, go for it, dude. So tonight we're here to talk about that Hellboy story, a crooked man, the crooked man, the crooked man. The Crooked Man. And we are pretty excited about it. I don't, I know that we're all three kind of big Hellboy fans, right? I would say so, yeah. This is kind of... Yeah. Was this one of your intros to comics, Luke? It was, yeah. This was this was one of the first, like, three or four series that I got totally, totally into. Yeah. Right on. When yep. was this put out, Josh? Uh, this was put out in July through September of 2008. And it, like you said, it was uh, drawn by Richard Corbin and uh, words by Mike Mignola. Are you guys Mignola verse fans outside of Hellboy? You know, I, I have read a handful of the Abe Sapien stories. I've read some, um, what's the guy's name? The, uh, the vampire hunter guy. Oh, Baltimore, Lord Baltimore. Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I really have not read any of the BPRD stuff, like the first or or maybe the the first two trade paperbacks of that. Okay. Yeah, same here. Like I've stayed away. I stayed away from reading BPRD just because it was another long, you know, bit of continuity to get into. But like Abe Sapien uh, and the uh, like Lord Baltimore, and then like Lobster Johnson, yeah. like all of all of those things were all coming out kind of. And when I was like feeling that I had to get anything <laughs> and everything at the comic shop, you know? Right. <laughs> so I, I have a lot of those things in, in floppies, like actually. So like this, this bundle, I have the crooked man. Uh, well, these are actually, I guess these are all Hellboys, but I, I have uh, a bunch of those Abe Sapien, like one and two issue, uh, uh, things that came out, but here this is like Chapel of Moloch, Bride of Hell, Hellboy in Mexico, and Double Feature of Evil. Like those were all like bundled up. But if there was ever like uh, a previews that had a Hellboy, I was like snagging it. I stayed away from any of the BPRD like heavy continuity stuff. But yeah, I've been collecting the floppies for BPRD for the last couple of years. And I've almost got it all. I still have to pick up some of the newest stuff, the Hell on Earth. I think kind of the conclusion to the whole thing was in that that particular series where it sounds like hell comes to Earth and things get real bad. 
Uh, yeah, so, like <laughs> so I haven't gotten to that point yet, but I've been mowing through those issues here over the last couple of days. Um, it's, it is cool stuff. I really dig Abe Sapien. I love Lobster Johnson. I love the whole aesthetic of Lobster Johnson and the idea of like this pulp hero that got filtered through bootleg films, but kind of made it mm-hmm. to the modern era and people still talk about. And when I've been doing this, this read through that I've been doing, I find myself drawn to Roger, the homunculus. I'm, I, I think he's a pretty cool character too. Roger is great. He's, he's tragic. He in is a way. tragic. I just got to a part where there's somebody new joining the team. Uh, ben Dymo, I think, is his name. He's the new field commander, and his I first. Know, I know, I know his character, like what he looks like, but I don't know anything about what his story is. He's a special forces officer. Something happened to him. I don't know what happened to him yet. Uh, he's got a big scar on his face, and he joins the team because uh, Hellboy's gone, and Kate Corrigan might be leaving the team, and Abe is having problems, and. They put him in charge, and his first thing is to order that Roger wears pants because he can't handle that he has that like that uh, that loop at his crotch <laughs> instead of genitalia. But it's all pretty cool. It's like a really neat universe. I think that a lot of people are into it. Um, the aesthetic is is probably what draws a lot of folks in, don't you think? The Mignola aesthetic. Yeah the the use of light and shadows and. Uh, recurring motifs like skulls and the way that that he draws skulls and the unique way that he's able to to portray characters. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a big draw. Yeah, it's funny when I read through. Like I have the library editions of Hellboy, and I read through some of his stuff, and he's like, "This is a bad drawing, and this one's bad, and this was a period of time where I felt like a really bad artist." And it's like a classic story with beautiful <laughs> illustrations, and it's just clear that. You know, everybody's got those issues. <laughs> uh, so it is, it's really cool looking stuff. Uh, he's definitely unique amongst all the artists that are out there working. So, um, so you read it, John, in the library edition. Is it like annotated in the margins or is it like back matter? It's not. Yeah, there's all this back matter. So he's got like early sketches of different covers. Oh, cool. Um, can, okay. Yeah. Um, and then there's annotations for that where he's like, it's there's usually a bunch of drawings and he's like, I don't really know what this is about. This happened after I came back home from a walk and I don't know what I drew these for, but he thinks that they might've been associated with the book that he's collected them into. I think it's the aesthetic that draws people to Hellboy, but also I'm really drawn to Hellboy because of the, the anthology nature of his stories. What do you think of that? Like, do you think that's part of it too, that, that brings people to him? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that ties into the the weird pulp aesthetic that Mignola can channel. Uh, and it makes it accessible, and it makes it more mysterious. Hellboy is an evergreen character. Like, we know the fate of Hellboy, but you can still write Hellboy stories until the end of time, the same way you can still write Indiana Jones stories until the end of time. Right. Uh, we can do that, and that that is that is beautiful, uh, and just his slight writing style, like he is a master word build or word, uh, he is a master world builder, but he has such a slight lean writing style that he conveys so much about the larger world that he shows and he doesn't tell, and it just makes it that much more accessible and mysterious like i think that ties equally into his like short arc 
kind of form too. Yeah. I think Hellboy has uh, a lot of the pulp heroes in him, right? Like he's, he's a good Conan analog in that he's, uh, usually doesn't have, you know, big soliloquies in terms of his, his dialogue, pretty short, simple statements. <laughs> Not that he's a simple person. He's very smart, right? Well-schooled yeah. in the, in the occult, but he doesn't spend much time talking about it. Instead, he's a man of action. Is this fist and sorcery rather than sword yeah. and sorcery? <laughs> yeah. Stone fist and sorcery. <laughs> um, Josh, you had sent something out earlier over the text thread to me and Luke about sort of the contributions that Manly Wade Wellman made to that mystique that we're talking about here, this anthology type character that you can pop in and pop out of reading. Uh, can you kind of summarize that for the, the listeners? Yeah, I, so in the collection, um, the trade paperback that I checked out on comiXology to read this, even though I have the floppies, I, I mentioned to to you guys uh, before we started recording, I had these, but I forgot to drag them out before I left for work. Um, so luckily, I, I still have not used Comixology, so I have a seven-day trial, and I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to get really drawn in. Um, <laughs> but uh, in this collection, there's uh, a short essay, both at the beginning of the story and then at the end of the collection, about Wellman. And Mignola directly calls Manly Wade Wellman... Uh, and, and dedicates this to him, um, the collection. And he says, uh, for mainly Wade Wellman, who made me realize just how many horrible things are hiding back there in the woods. Um, and then he says, uh, mainly Wade Wellman's character, John, who wandered around the Appalachian mountains, playing his guitar and fighting monsters, um, was a major influence on me when I created Hellboy. Some of the better Hellboy stories, he says, the corpse heads, the troll, witch." have that aimless wanderer feel. But until the crooked man, I'd never set a story in John's neck of the woods. In fact, I'd done very few stories set in America and none drawing on American folklore. And so he's drawing out this uh, tradition that Wellman tapped into as well of this lone sort of wanderer coming in like uh, a force of nature, right? Like he's, he's riding on the breeze, man. He's, he is the breeze and he comes in and does his thing and leaves things better than he found him. And that's what Hellboy does in these stories. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I, I love like, there's a, there's a bit where Tom and Hellboy are talking and the crooked man and there's the reference to England and Tom's like, huh? Yeah. England, who would have thought, you know, it's like, it's a world away and you get this like sense of wonder from him. Uh, I don't, I don't know. It's that's like, that is perfect. Uh, Wellman-esque like writing, like, like to, to, to really like hammer home the, the wonder of somebody that would live in Appalachia in this time and place to be thinking about like the fact that Hellboy is of course the, the big red demon in the trench coat, uh, wandering around. I love that that doesn't confront anybody. They're just like, especially here with, with witches and, and, uh, you know, the crooked man wandering around. Like everybody just accepts that Hellboy is Hellboy. Mm-hmm. But like that level of like low key wonder is, it's beautiful. And I don't know, like Wellman's ability to kind of make us realize at least like I say us, like we're all in the Eastern United States, that there's this, there's weird here 
that you it does like the, the the local can be exotic too like that's the thing that wellman really taps into the same way that like lovecraft or howard does too like there's weird here there's exotic here if you just if the light shines on the edge of the woods in certain a certain way and you're actually out there at night and it's quiet you know that moonlight makes you see witches and it's 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 spooky yeah, <laughs> yeah. man yeah well put that's that's awesome um and I think you're exactly right. This this type of regional uh, folklore kind of being brought into the pulpy fiction, like that is that is Howardian, that is uh, Wellmanian, that <laughs> is uh, Lovecraftian. You know that, I, and I think that is what, in my mind, entrenches Mike Mignola as a modern pulp writer. I also think there's a very straightforward nature to the kinds of stories we're talking about where. And it was sort of mentioned in the article that you sent us, Josh, where nobody is really looked down upon, right? Like this is Appalachia and these people, they know something that Hellboy doesn't like Hellboy cooperates with them. He doesn't come in as the authority, the man with a briefcase that's like going to cure all their ills. He's there to learn and to cooperate. And I think that's an important yeah. element of why this succeeds. Yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go, I was going to just say he's an outsider. But like you said, he's he's not uh, preaching or teaching like he's yeah. he's just here. He knows some of the local color. He's he's able to lend a hand. I, I was going to add, too, and I think this is part of the like the the symbolic attraction of Hellboy and why he is such a cool kind of timeless character. Like he is not uh, he is not uh the christ he's not a white savior he's not a christ figure he's not like he's the, he's actually the opposite right like that's that's the cool thing about hellboy is that he doesn't like he doesn't even want to be anybody but he's supposed to be the opposite of that and so his his path is so attractive to a reader uh i mean there's enough there's enough uh generic like white savior kind of like white knight stories and Hellboy's not that you know we all want to see like the, the the panel in the in the series like at the back end where it's just white blinding light and Hellboy just goes to whale and and they're like let him get a few licks in his his mm-hmm. path is dark like that that's the world building that's so very slight and lean you just you love this character and you just want to you just it's it's so full of emotion like what he's able to put on the page and it's so full of emotion because you don't know the whole story do you think you need to know the whole story like to to dip into the crooked man and and read this story and enjoy it nope i don't think so i and i think i think actually not knowing a lot of the story makes hellboy like that's what makes it so good that's what makes it feel so powerful like even if you've read all of the hellboy stories you still feel like you don't know the like the world well enough and you want to know more like that's why that's part of the reason to me why reading some 18 volume like long-winded epic fantasy series that just has like so many little nuances and cracks and crevices in it like that that type of storytelling is not as attractive to me as 
this, generally speaking. Like even something like with like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there are so there's so much rich history there. Like all you're seeing is one little blip in time of like the grander Tolkien universe that you still feel sort of like lost within the story. Uh, and I think that is, I think that type of storytelling is lost oftentimes in very sequential continuity, heavy, uh, types of media. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I don't mean to, I, I feel like I'm like, uh, just bullet, like, Bulling along with the conversation here or something. I don't mean to be. It's a podcast. Like a, That's what it's for. Plowing through. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I totally agree with you. I I have a hard time, and I've I've mentioned this to you before. Like, um, starting new fantasy novels when I know that they're going to be part one of of seven or eight. You know, I I just I can't grok to that. But I I agree that the the short story of the 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 anthology or or even the you know, publication of, of short stories featuring a recurring character. That seems like a, an art that is lost and, you know, you get it in comics, but it's, I don't know. It's not the same. Like Hellboy has more in common with the pulps and the short stories that you would find in weird tales than a character like Spider-Man does because <laughs> there's a certain quality. Like you guys were keying into earlier you could write Hellboy stories forever, just like you could write Spider-Man stories forever. But you could also bring Hellboy to a, a satisfying end in a way that no ending will ever satisfy the Spider-Man fans, right? Like, yeah. I, I, maybe I'm just full of crap here. But no, I, th I think I, that's I think, that's I think that's part of Hellboy's endurance is that Hellboy has an end. Hellboy has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the middle is infinite. Like Mike Mignola till he, the day he dies, he can tell stories of Hellboy from 1952 from 1950. And that's the series right now. I think that he's doing is Hellboy and the BPRD from 1952 to through 1956 or something to that effect. Um, it's awesome that he can do that, but it's the story is done and that gives it, I think something that Spider-Man and Wonder Woman or whoever doesn't have, as a month to month comic character. Like you're never going to see the end of those characters. You're never going to get that satisfaction like you do with Hellboy. Plus. Yeah. And so, so to, to, to sort of further apply this to pulp characters like Conan, we, we sort of get a sense that like from the very first story, we get this epitaph of, of Conan was this, this, uh, barbarian warrior, thief, king, reaver, slayer, lover, dancer. <laughs> Florist. Right. Like he, he was all these things, but he's not anymore. At least that's my imagination. And maybe that's some of the dark horse Conan comics seeping in. Um, it seems like an epitaph. It seems like Conan's tale is done and we're hearing about his life. And that's something that I, I find in common with, with Hellboy too. Like Hellboy is going to ultimately meet this fate that he's careening toward whatever that might be. For those of you who haven't read it, <laughs> check out the Bible first. It might give you some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically revelation. Yeah. Go to revelations. Just tool around in revelations <laughs> for a bit. See what it has to say. Yeah. You might pick something mm. up. 
Spoilers. Spoilers for, <laughs> for Hellboy. <laughs> I'm going to start writing that in every King James version I see. <laughs> <laughs> you, should, uh, you should tweet that at uh, the Apocrypals. <laughs> just tweet it at, at Pontifex. See what he has to say. Right. Actually, uh, I think that, that that is a neat parallel there because I feel that way about Conan as well, that there is an epitaph for him and we're like, we're learning of this person's adventures. I also have always felt that way about Hellboy when I've read through these stories is that this is like a, a retrospective. Somehow we're looking back on his life and how he got to the to death because it is pretty clear that he's wrapped up in a, an apocalyptic prophecy from the get-go and if you apply some of those Judeo-Christian teachings, you can you can make some assumptions about what he is and what he's going to end up being, and you sort of know his epitaph. So it it has that same kind of backwards-facing quality to me. Cool. I'm I'm glad I'm not too far off base. I don't think you're with, crazy with that thought. Does anybody <laughs> should we should not. we synopsize the story? Like, should we talk about what the? I guess we should. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we should. What's the Crooked Man, then? Well, the Crooked Man is this ancient... I think he used to be a man, maybe, or maybe he never was, but he's he's a, a demon of, of greed and avarice that lives in the mountains of Appalachia. Um, he fought for the British during the Revolution. He uh, played both sides against each other during the Civil War. He's He's this... The the greed and envy and and um, I guess the malleability of of mortal people and their and their lust for power and and money that's what the crooked man is he's he's all that in the flesh did you guys think though that he was ever a, a an actual person or is this just a demon that's been walking the earth for however long is is he one of Hellboy's distant cousins. <laughs> Uh, no, I took him to actually be uh, uh, once once a man, sort yeah. of a saint, saint of killers kind of thing. I mean, okay. just based on the basis of like where Tom's sort of talking about it, and you get the the three red panel or the four red panels in total, like beauty, and one of them is the you see why the crooked man is crooked from his ah, hung, from his okay. hung neck and head, like that's kind of. Uh, like I took that to be a real, like that's his, that's his real history. Okay. As, as real as anything can be right, <laughs> in this, yeah. this weird ass Appalachian, uh, folktale that we're reading here. That page uh, has, has the, uh, the image of the crooked man that creeps me out that I was telling you guys about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah, man. Oh, man, that's a great illustration. Um, so what about you, John? Did you take this flashback memory? What, what Tom knows about the crooked man? to be the the truth about the crooked man i did i thought that he was a man who became the avatar for for pain and misery and greed and avarice okay see yeah. i i guess i guess the thing that made me think that he was something more is that um let's see before the the little panel about the hanging uh in the panel with him behind that little thin you know black pine or whatever it is um it says they say he's got a big house back up there in the hurricane and that he was one of the first white men to come up into these mountains hundreds of years ago that mm -hmm. he was behind half 
of the trouble between the whites and the Indians and that he was for the British in the revolution and played both sides in the war between the states. And so in my head, he was already immortal. Like, but I guess, I guess you could be a fairly young man and I, I don't know, maybe he's, well, he's already so, given over to, to witchcraft and extended his life. Like, like Effie does in this. The, I, I think that's, that's definitely how I interpreted it. Like what's the, what's the, Oh yeah, old Garfield's heart. So the way yeah. that like that Garfield has this uh, this supernatural heart, like that has allowed him to basically cheat cheat death. I that's the way I took it here is that there is something unnatural. Like even when he was quote unquote like uh, just a man, he was still allied with the bad and he he was not yet dead and come back again he was just living this extended life like yeah i i get what you're saying now though like whenever you whenever you make that remark like he's he definitely has a uh a historical mythic characteristic before he's dead yeah um but i i think you're right now that now that we talk through it it makes sense that he is a witch and he's He's given himself over to the, the the powers of darkness, and that has extended his life. I, I guess that's the part that I, my my mind was having trouble wrapping around. But now that we talk about it, it, it does make sense. Um, and so we have our our character Tom, who has come home, and Hellboy, who just happens to be wandering through. Uh, they meet up with each other, and and Hellboy gets sort of. Uh, wrapped up with Tom and his, his little task that he's doing at home. He's been away for, for many, many years, like 20 years. Yeah. Um, what Cora Fisher has, uh, she's got, she's been afflicted by a witch ball. Right. Is that what's going down? That's kind of like how it opens. It's like Hellboy's there as like the, uh, the prognosticator or the doctor tending, uh, to this, this woman who's breathing, but not together. Yeah. yeah. She's, she's got a, by Cora Fisher. She's got a scar oh, oh, yeah. on her. On Sorry, her. yeah. She's got a scar on her on her chest there. Uh, that's that's sort of circular, and it looks like someone has taken a, uh, uh, I don't know, like a, a hickory nut in the the husk and just thrown it at her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It turns out to be this witch ball, like Luke says. Uh, had you guys ever heard of witch balls before? Can't say I have. Not not until I read this. This was it. This is the first time. I, this was the first time for me too, but this actually is a, a good little bit of folklore that Mignola pulled into the story. And in trying to find out what the folkloric roots of this were, I found a paper from, uh, let's see, 1914. This is in the Journal of American Folklore uh, by Josiah Henry Combs, uh, titled Sympathetic Magic in the Kentucky Mountains, Some Curious Folk Survivals. And there's one paragraph here that I want to read to you guys because I think it's really cool. Sympathetic magic in its essence is illustrated by the image or pictograph resorted to by witches. The picture of the victim crudely scrawled upon a tree or something else by a witch who wishes to work the black art does not mean much unless the witch ball or hairball is used. A witch can take a person's life with this dangerous ammunition. A small bunch of hair from a horse or cow is rolled between the two hands into a small round ball, and this ball is used as a bullet. In whatever part the ball hits the picture, 
uh, and the corresponding part of the victim, a wound is inflicted. In Knott County, which is down in southeastern Kentucky, several years ago, a man was plowing in the field and suddenly dropped dead between his plow handles. It was a strange case and doubtless never would have been solved had it not been for a single piece of undeniable evidence. When he fell dead, a witch ball dropped out of his mouth. That was enough. The case was investigated, and it was found that a wizard, jealous of the victim, had gone into the woods, drawn his victim's picture upon a tree, taken aim, and shot a witch ball into the mouth represented in the picture. <laughs> That's amazing. That's And it's a little bit different than the uh, story we get, uh, uh, the meta commentary that we get in this comic about witch balls, right, John? Yeah. There is this like one page advertisement for witch balls. <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, that's what I've been doing ever since we started up the season and kind of planned out reading this story. I've been cooking up witch balls. Oh, Are shit. Following this recipe? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got a bunch. And I got one of those, uh, what do you call those things? Like a wrist rocket, like the slingshots used to have. Like, <laughs> oh, man. Back in the day, I'm ready. Yeah. You you printed out you printed out some uh, fat heads of some of your enemies. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just gonna hang them on the, the side of your garage and uh-huh. thunk, punk thunk. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna etch them into the sides of like high life cans. <laughs> I get the satisfaction of the the the, the tings and you know amazing shoot, <laughs> shooting cans with a BB gun. I don't know. I'm back to being like 12 for for a split second there. <laughs> yeah it's I, I love that little back that that's like an eerie comics kind of nod right like like is it what did you say john because you you said it before we started recording like the witch is a what, what is that is that from house of mystery or oh yeah josh was saying it looked like something from one of the ec comics or something yeah yeah ec comics which let's google it real quick i'm pretty uh, sure yeah, she's I'm, she's the haunt of fear okay so who's in House of Mystery? Because I, I may have just like brought that. Um, House of Mystery, I think, was DC. Yes, and, and but, not and not EC. I, I don't know who's the crypt keeper keeper there. Like I feel like it was a witch. That's kind of. I don't remember. I don't know. I know too far able do some of them. But yeah, I don't know. You're you're. It's it's that it's the horror comic. Yeah, Sorry. it's the, it's it well, it's the it's more eerie than it is. Yeah, it's it's that tradition uh, that that stems all the way back to the the radio horror programs, right? The the horror host that eventually gave rise to things like the Crypt Keeper and the the old witch in EC Comics, and then we see the Crypt Keeper in uh, the Tales from the Crypt HBO show and the movies that stemmed from that. Uh, yeah, it's a and, it's a long and storied tradition, and and uh, you see her right here. She's uh, Granny, right? Uh, what's her name? Granny Oaks. Gran- Granny Oakum. That's her name. Tell us how to make a witch ball. We'll post this page. I, I think we'll we'll include this page given our our discussion here. What else did you guys learn about witches by reading this uh, uh, absolutely factual and true account of a witch <laughs> in Appalachia? I, I had never seen a raccoon used as uh, a witch's familiar. I thought that was neat. 
That is pretty cool. That is some amazing, disturbing art, man. Like when that raccoon climbs back in through the mouth, that is, that is like, this is such a skeezy, like scary comic. There's, there's so many like horrifying moments in it. I don't know. Mignola must have some messed up dreams. Yeah, you get some body, body horror <laughs> with the horse transformation, where the old That's, be, the, yeah, the old beat up horse that Elfie Cobb is riding on is actually Tom's yeah. paw. When she when she takes to the air, that is the that is the scariest uh, bit of the book to me. And like the. Uh, the panel where there's a panel where she's talking to Hellboy and she's got her head sort of tilted to the side and she's smiling wryly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is some freaky, freaky stuff. And it's just this beautific devil woman who's like taunting, but uh, I love it. Yeah. She's dressed very simply. Um, she's wearing a low cut. Like she's, she's a temptress, um, but she's not, I, I guess she's more down to earth than than some of the uh, pulpier temptresses that we've seen, right? Uh, but she sure is uh, pretty scary, and and Corbin is able to draw some like rictus grins and and distorted faces on on some of these characters that add to the ambiance. Yeah, that body horror of of being transformed into a horse and being ridden by witches night after night till you die—that's pretty awful. <laughs> what what about witch bottles? How about that bottle that that we find in Cora's cabin? It's got the bug in it. Yeah, with the bug. I did do some research on witch bottles, and I wasn't able to find anything specific to Appalachia. But that's an old and storied tradition of of storing uh, various uh, magical liniments in a bottle. Uh, maybe even with uh, some body fluids like urine. Um, to give it a little bit more of, of that sympathetic magic kind of, kind of thing. Um, I looked up the, uh, uh, witch bones just to see if, uh, boiling a cat and taking a, uh, the first bone out of it was based on anything. I wasn't able to find much. I looked up yeah. the, the hurricane. I, I didn't know yeah. if you guys had ever heard that terminology for a place up in the mountains before. Me, no, I hadn't. I hadn't. Had you? I had not. How about you, Luke? Uh, so where's uh, uh in West Virginia when you're on sixty four? Yeah, hurricane is is how it's pronounced. That's locally. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what. That's immediately where my mind goes, but I don't. I, I didn't know that as a term for for that kind of location. Like yeah. basically the like the the hairiest, brambliest, backhauler, grown over kind of area. That's the hurricane. It sounds to me like I think about this in terms of uh, kind of where I grew up in Arkansas. There's a lot of spots where you'll get like tornado or ice storm damage, uh, and so you'll get just a swath of uh, wilderness that becomes even it's inaccessible. And so like when I was doing some, some, uh, research, like in, like after grad school, whatever I was doing a postdoc, one of the spots where we worked at mammoth cave, uh, where we would go in, you had to pass through a serious 
chunk of, of ice storm damage. And so you had just trees that were blown over. And of course, when those big trees go down, then you get the, the, the flush of growth from the, from the sun hitting the bottom of the, the forest floor and you get like brambles and just green briar everywhere. And it just creates like this impenetrable green hell. And you don't want to go across that, especially in the middle of the night, if you're coming out from catching bats or doing whatever you're, whatever you're doing, like you needed to go around it. (laughs) And so, and so whenever the descriptors of the hurricane happen, like in the crooked man, that's a, that's kind of where my head goes, like an inaccessible, like deep, deep part of a, of a, of a wilderness. Yeah. I think that makes sense, but, but I had never, uh, you know, I was familiar with hurricane West Virginia. That's, that's where there's a uh, water park there. Uh, at least there was when I was a kid called waves of fun. <laughs> nice. I'm looking it up real quick on, on Google. This is, uh, yeah. I think it's still open. Waves of fun. Uh, one Valley drive, hurricane West Virginia. Um, and when I was a kid, you'd always see the commercials for it. Waves of fun. You can slide, you can glide, you can catch a tide. Um, and I begged mom to take us, take us, please. Let's go to waves of fun. It's, it is, it is Mecca. It's, it's a cool wave pool and water slide uh-huh. in, the, in the mountains. And we finally went, I was in like fifth or sixth grade. We went to waves of fun uh-huh. and, uh, I got hit by one of the, the waves in the wave pool and, and thought I was going to drown. I thought I was going <laughs> to die. <laughs> we had, uh, we had magic Springs in hot Springs, Arkansas. That was the, that was, uh, the, the spot. John, did you guys have a uh, a little amusement uh, park slash water park type place? Indiana Beach. There's more than corn to Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> really? That was their slogan, or is their slogan? They just came back in business. That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> One of the other things that I was intrigued by was I've heard the term Melungeon before. Yeah, but I'd never seen anybody draw it in a comic book, I guess. And so, what do you, do you guys know anything about Melungeon peoples or like any stories about that? I don't. I think that it is just a a mixed race group of people that settled in southeast Kentucky, uh, southwest West Virginia, and that that corner of the world, uh, north northeast Tennessee. Okay, yeah, it was not a term that I was familiar with until. You know, until this, uh, like, and I looked, I looked it up. Like the the term that I guess is probably far more common all across the Eastern United States, and it's the term that I encountered growing up. And I, I it's uh, what m- mulatto is like the term that was used for mixed uh, white black ancestry, uh, and that was. Uh, a term that that I heard growing up a bit, and I mean, of course, other 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 slurs uh, that that were different. But like, it seems like it gets at that. But like, with the quick little bit of researching for the the Melungeon term, that also pulls in like Native American ancestry too, right? Yeah, yeah that's what that's yeah. what I'm seeing on on Wikipedia here. Um, tri a triracial people. With uh, uh, ancestry from European, African, and Native Americans, yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, 
I really don't know much about it. I, 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 I think that it's used for a shock factor here. Right. I guess that part of what I was intrigued by was it seemed like a conflation in the illustration of two things I'd heard about in Kentucky, which were Melungeon people and then blue people. Because the illustration oh, yeah. is they're blue. Uh, and I was like, I didn't think that was the same thing. But there are the blue people of Kentucky, right? That's right. Yeah. What was? Do you know anything about that? Like, what's their what's their story? <laughs> I I really don't know much about it. Yeah. I, I know that it is it is a result of issues that that are linked to recessive genes. Yeah. So meth. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to pronounce this. Methemoglobin. Benemia, methemoglobinemia. I'm going to put it in the chat so you guys can, I'm looking at can it see it. Methemoglobinemia. Methemoglobinemia. It's an elevated concentration of methemoglobin in the blood and can cause blue-colored skin. And if you look up pictures of some of these folks, the the fugates, uh, the blue fugates, they, they are very blue. Like, it's not just a a tinge of blue. It's it's a a lot like uh, Arrested Development blue, <laughs> right? I just wondered if yeah, like if they had put those two things together for that particular drawing, because my experience with the term Melungeon definitely didn't involve being blue witches in, in abandoned right. coal mines, right? And and there's a there's a lot of uh, folk sort of I don't know folk tales, I guess, about Melungeon people. And, you know, I, I really don't have a coherent memory of them, but I know that it's, it's fairly, uh, uh, it, it could be fairly insulting to people of that, that designation. Right. So, uh, but, but here they're depicted as, as subterranean mind mutants, right. That yeah. have black witchcraft and, and, uh, yeah, they're horrifying. But ultimately, Hellboy wins, I guess, right? Yeah, man. <laughs> of course he does. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> he gets a, a blessed wins. shovel, and he whoops that old demon right in the face. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Talk, about, let's talk about the crooked man himself and and how he how he existed before, you know, just prior to getting hit with a holy shovel. <laughs> <laughs> he his neck is bent. He can't stand up straight. He's got like one demon eye, one frog eye, one lizard eye. I don't know what would you describe it as a Sith eye. Sith eye, yeah. yeah. It's it's uh, uh, all quieted over and 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 lazy and veers to the to one side. Looks up. You don't know if he's winking at you or blinking at you. <laughs> uh, and his jaw is all dislocated. He's got this this. Uh, these creepy teeth that all look the same. Uh, he's wearing a cravat, like he's wearing a uh, a getup that dates him from another time, right? Ruffled sleeves. Yeah. Like in the fifties in Appalachia, even among the well-to-do, you wouldn't see people dress like this, right? So he he definitely comes from another place and another time, um, and he is trying to get Tom out of the church uh, because Tom owes him his soul and he's come to collect and he's doing everything he can. He's raising the dead. 
He's tempting the the old preacher that that's inside the church. Yeah, can we talk about um, him for a bit? Too? Like, I think he's yeah. a pretty interesting addition to the story at this point. Yeah, what so we you- meet him. He's blind. He's in this ruined old backwoods church. What do you think about him, Luke? Is he pretty cool? Yeah, I mean, I think he's a good. Uh, sorry, I'm pausing. I'm just trying to think about like, like he's a good balance. Like we've got we've got Hellboy and we've got uh, Tom, and he is uh, kind of a balance and like a, a third uh, member there in the house, like in, or in, in the church house. Uh, so at that point, you kind of have this little push pull thing that starts up across all three characters. And I think it's really effective to have like a man in a cloth and, and Tom, who's this reluctant witch and then Hellboy, who's the reluctant, you know, like, uh, uh, beast of the apocalypse or (laughs) whoever, whoever, whoever he, like whatever that crown is. Also side note, I, how many times do you see the Hellboy, uh, uh, panel of when he first appears and he's like crouched in the, in the the pool of fire like you know in the in the church where from from whence he came we do not know like i i will never get tired of seeing like baby hellboy freshly born <laughs> in like 19 what 1943 or whatever right. uh or 41 like i i love it like it's yeah. it's so it's such a beautiful visualization and the asymmetry of like Hellboy's body, all of the things that make Hellboy such a badass, like visual impression. I love that. And I thought yeah. Corbin, he like, he killed it here. Like, it's just a really a great, like little panel. We but, see a ton, a ton of different artists do that as well. Yeah. Their, their, uh, interpretation of that panel. Yeah. He does a killer Hellboy. Uh, but I like the, uh, I like the preacher man. Uh, being there in the story, and I like the, the the hints and the trials and the tribulations and the tests that the crooked man throws at him. All of that's cool. I like the ghosts that pop up within the the churchyard. Uh, it's it's very spooky, and that's 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 Mignola at its finest, where you're just reading along, and there's this allusion to something, and then you get a panel of like a transparent woman like sitting in a pew, mm-hmm. and it just rips your heart like you just have such an emotional beat and then it's gone it's fleeting yeah because we we glossed over but cora doesn't make it the uh the melungeon witches are able to uh explode her body into a a a thousand invertebrate groups right john yeah she's like a big centipede when she comes out of there but her soul is safe she is safe from hell it seems like what did you guys think of the dichotomy, the the presentation of the dichotomy in between good and evil and heaven and hell as presented here? Does it mesh with the mainly Wade Wellman worldview, do you think? Or how 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 uh, similar is it to to the John stories? I think it's I think it's pretty I think it's pretty uh, Wellman esque uh, because uh, I, what we see here like what unravels by the end of the second issue and into the third is that there's witches that surround the church and the community members, you know, there used to be a lot of good folk, but now pertinent, everybody's a witch. Like that's kind of like a statement that the preacher man makes. And, uh, like it, it resonates with like 
other stuff. Like when I was reading that, I thought about like uh, uh, Young Goodman Brown. Like there's mm-hmm. this has echoes of that kind of story, but like the the darker side of humanity and the darker side of sin and that pulls people in the manly Wade Wellman stories that we've read so far. I think it's depicted here. Like I think, especially as we get into that last, uh, that last issue and the witches are reading everyone's gate gravestones and resurrecting these yeah. bodies and everybody's like sins are out on front street. Like, like nobody's perfect. There's uh, all of these various sinners and it is, it's, it's sad. Uh, and it's, it's, it strikes the same chords to me though, that we see and that we've seen in some of the silver John stories. I thought there was sort of an absolutism. Yeah. Because like everybody in this graveyard is a bad person seems like, because they all start to crawl up out of the ground. Like they, everybody's got a sin that they're able to play upon. And obviously some of them are pretty bad. We've got a woman who killed two husbands with poison, but then there's a guy, Nate Green, who stole from the government. Like, he doesn't deserve to be called up as an army member of, of Hades. <laughs> like, he, that's fine. You can steal from the government. Um, right. It just it struck me as interesting that they were able to, to utilize some of these people who seem like sort of normal folks uh, over witch people, I guess. Uh, so I thought that was odd. But I agree with Luke that it is, it's very manly. That's the adjective I'm going to use for <laughs> manly Wade Wellman like. Um, yeah. where it, it's weird to me that this is the crooked man and my perception of him before we read the story, like he's really creepy, really scary and has a lot of power, but he is in like a lot of the manly Wade Wellman tradition. He's also sort of a local problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so he's so, just in the cellar. So, <laughs> so the other comparison, and I don't think you guys have read this, but there's a Manly Wade Wellman. I guess it's probably a novella or a novelette. It's called Fearful Rock. Have you guys ever read that? Nope. No. I so so I've, re- I've I read that. Uh, I don't know at some point here in the the past few recordings of our of our stories, but it's in that that first world fantasy awards anthology. Uh, that that I had mentioned at one point as a as a one thing, and it's a, it's a longer form story, and it's it's not ne- necessarily Appalachian. It's actually an Ozark story, and so it takes place like in northern Arkansas, uh, and it's post Civil War, but uh, totally Mignola is pulling is pulling from Fearful Rock as much as he is with his pulling from the silver John. So, uh, the, the enchanting, uh, uh, witch that we see within the crooked man, there's, there's analogs or at least like there's, a, there's what's her name? Effie, uh, Effie and Cora. Yeah. Effie and Cora, like those two characters are kind of melded into a character in central, in, in fearful rock that are kind of like, just a singular, and there is a crooked man esque local problem, like as you say, John. And I guess to to sort of bring this around, like the uh, a lot of the the Silver John big bads are local problems, like these witch these right. these these witch men are are problems for like twenty or fifty people, and they've got to be dealt with. And in Fearful Rock, it's just out in the middle of nowhere. Like this is a this is a 
kind of a local problem that this man rolls into and he has to deal with this necromancer. Uh, it's, it's weird. Also, the other thing is the, the, the skin, the, the skin thing, like the, the empty skin trope. Like yeah. that's, that's another thing. Like that's in the fear, the fearful rock story. And I was, whenever I was reading them, like, Oh, this is, this is totally going to tie in with our, uh, with our crooked man stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, local problems, man. And uh, that makes it feel real. Right. The world isn't going to end here. Right. Yeah, I love it. I, I love how easily this fits into our our season. And we've stated a couple of times that uh, just building up to this, that you could substitute Hellboy for um, John the Balladeer, and it it wouldn't really change many of these stories all that much. Yeah. And so we get this this big build up to this this blessed shovel. <laughs> I love. I, I just I have to think that Mignola thought that was hilarious. <laughs> I'm gonna bless this. Um, Right, and then he slams it into this uh, projection, I guess, of the Crooked Man, because we see the Crooked Man's true form in uh, a few pages. Right. Up in his mansion in the Hurricane. He's a sad crab monster. Yeah, he's got multi-stocked eyes. He's a Lovecraft monster, kind of. Yeah. But he's got jars of gold and... Uh, we find that that perhaps those those gold pieces were each a soul that he's he's taken for himself. Yeah, I, I do like that ambiguity of is it really gold or is it all the people's souls he's collected over the years? And if it is the souls, like why why has he got all these souls? What's it going to get him? Uh, I don't know. I I, I you know this is meta text. This is the the cool part of reading pulps to me is you can sort of apply your own sort of um, views on these things like we have on the show. And I took it to mean that he was, he wasn't really working for the devil necessarily. He was, or or if he was, he wasn't passing on the souls, right? Like if he's a middleman for one of the, the higher agents of hell, Astaroth or whoever, he's not fulfilling his end of the bargain in the same way that Tom wasn't fulfilling his end of the bargain. Nice. I like that. I I think is a a pretty cool little, little idea in this story. Good parallel. He's, he's not, he's not making good on his end of it. Uh And then we get this cool little, uh, postscript with, uh, Effie Cobb getting her just desserts. Yeah. Nay, nay. (laughs) (laughs) she gets the magical bridal put on her and and painted on her side beware i am a witch it's not great it's not a great way to go out probably stuck like that forever hopefully Hopefully. good for her yeah that's what she gets he's that 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 definitely is i think a uh a cool way to end this story she gets her comeuppance. It is good. Very Hellboy as well. Very Hellboy. Is it very uh, John the Balladeer? 
I guess so I because mean, I that, the evil got yeah, evil got whammed to death. <laughs> George Washington <laughs> yeah. didn't then, show up, but and there's a bit of morality that's induced. Like everybody gets their little bit of morality, like a morality story too. Yeah, uh, yeah I think I think it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the cool little subtle lines in this is the old priest or the old preacher telling Tommy that, you know, you you did some bad things and maybe it's right that you're suffering now, but it's not right that you should go to hell. And I, I like that idea of of, uh, you know, it, it's very it's very Southern Baptist to me. It's very <laughs> or maybe not Southern Baptist, but Baptist in general, like you you do wrong and you have to suffer for it. And um, yeah, I, I don't know where I was going with that, but I, I like that notion of suffering a little bit for the little bit of evil that you did, but you didn't do a whole lot of evil. So you don't have to be punished forever. It's also sort of a sad inverse of the Hellboy story, right? I mean, he's doing good all his life, ostensibly good, beating up Mm -hmm. on bad things, giving people reprieves, and he's never going to escape that bad end. He's not going to escape hell. Oh yeah. 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 But, but Tommy does. Right. Evidently. Because of Hellboy. Because of Hellboy, yeah, he uh, carries our sins for us. He's our savior. <laughs> yep. Well, I think we kind of like. We, I mean, we talked about it, right? We did it, and we like it. Yeah, yeah, I like the story a lot. Um, there, there are a number of Hellboy stories that I really love, and this is definitely, I think, in my top five. And I would rate it highly uh, as a mainly Wade Wellman pastiche. Now I'm trying to think of what would be my top Hellboy story ever. Okay. <laughs> What's the first one that comes to mind? It's funny. The first one that came to mind was Heads. It's not really the greatest one ever, but it makes me laugh that these flying head demons from Japan that I think are really funny, uh, like that story is really funny, and the fact that they run into Hellboy also makes me laugh. And just the way he deals with them, it, it always tickles me. <laughs> Damn it. Damn Heads. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you were going to eat me. <laughs> I like the uh, animated version of that. Have you ever seen it? Oh, no. I didn't know that. Ron Perlman does a voice. Uh, nice. I think Luke and I, I, I picked it up at some point. We watched it, didn't we, over at your mm-hmm. place? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, Heads is a good choice. I, I would go with uh, The Corpse off the top of my head. I really like The Corpse. That's a good one, too. And it's similar to Heads. It's got that similar sort of wry sense of humor like he's taken this corpse to different graveyards and, and they're all full (laughs) and he's like, ah, crap. (laughs) And he he has to do it before dawn. He has to get him to his grave before dawn. I do like the, the recurrent use of ah, crap as well. Ah, crap. Ah, crap. Cause Hellboy can't swear. Hellboy in Mexico. Also pretty dope. That apparently that he great. was he was drunkenly a luchador for a year at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can it, lady? I've been drinking with some skeletons. <laughs> well, we can quote Hellboy all day, but we should probably close out our podcast episode. Should so, we close it out? Yeah, I think so. Uh, where are we heading next, okay. Luke? Uh, we're gonna watch a movie, right? We're gonna watch uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and uh, maybe talk about. Manly Wade Wellman within the the filmic 
media and kind of bring it out into modern, you know, modern sort of like Wilman-esque stories. That's kind of that's kind of where we're going, right? Yeah, right. yeah, we're going to, into the the South, the sunny South, with George Clooney, and uh, uh, we're in search of uh, Dapper Dan. And Josh, since you're the powder familius, how about you tell the folks where they can find us on the internet? I'm bonafide. And if you want to go to a bonafide website, you should aim your browser at thecromcast.blogspot.com. And if you want to uh, interact with us, we're on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash thecromcast. We're on Twitter at thecromcast. We're on Instagram at thecromcast. And you can even call us. That's 859-429-CROM. And you can email us. We're thecromcast at gmail.com. I like the I was trying au- to I like the auctioneer level voice you put on for that. I was trying to channel George Clooney from Oh Brother. <laughs> you his his dialogue is it's very fast. These two soggy sons of bitches just saved their souls. <laughs> I guess I'm the only one that's unaffiliated. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's one of my favorite lines. <laughs> uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be great. So tune in then uh, and hear Josh quote the whole movie, hopefully. <laughs> I hope so. I'm a crooked man bent down by I'm a crooked man bent down by ceiling Floodwaters rising fast Dead bodies floating fast Tornadoes swooping down Out of Satan's jewel crown I hit a date tonight With a gal from out of state a police man right. hit himself a police badge oh, he said I'm doomed to fail said his God is better off in jail I am a crooked man bent down by
Hey, it's a podcast. We did it. We did it.